0: If you would please turn with me in the scriptures to Galatians chapter 3. We are in the middle of studying Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul wrote this letter many years after he was converted. He was a Jewish legal scholar who was also a persecutor of Christians until he was converted about a year after Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul, the author of this letter, was converted when Jesus personally confronted him On the road to Damascus. This letter is written about 15 years or so after that event. It was written a few years after Paul and Barnabas had been sent by their home church in Syria to plant churches in the southern region of Galatia. In the studies that we've done to this point, we have looked at the historical record in Acts 13 and 14 for the history of that church planting trip where Paul and Barnabas planted the churches in the southern region of Galatia. In this letter, Paul's writing about A.D. 48, he corrects these young converts in southern Galatia for beginning to embrace a hybrid gospel that's really no gospel at all. They were beginning to believe that even though you're forgiven through Jesus, you need to be forgiven of your sin through Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, They were beginning to think that in order to be right with God, you still had to add to that obedience to the Mosaic law. Main things especially, like get circumcised and obey the dietary laws and keep the holy days and and so forth. You have to mix Jesus and Moses. So in chapters 1 and 2, Paul wrote autobiographically. He reminded the Galatian believers how his gospel, the gospel that he preaches, actually came to him. And he makes the point very strongly that his gospel came from God. It didn't come from people. It didn't even come from the apostles in Jerusalem. In fact, his gospel on one notable occasion corrected the apostles in Jerusalem or corrected the apostle Peter in particular. So his point in the first two chapters is really to give the account of his own story to say, my gospel didn't come from me, it didn't come from other people, it came from God. And then beginning in chapter 3 and continuing all the way through chapter 4, this is the section in which we're, we're in right now, Paul writes, theologically, he confronts this false gospel, this hybrid or mixed gospel that the Galatians are, are being tempted with. He confronts it with biblical reasoning. And I pointed out last week that in Galatians 3 1 to 14, Paul essentially asks three theological questions. And these questions strike right at the heart of the Bible. Verses 1 to 6, he basically says So tell me, how did you receive the Spirit? Was it by obeying the law or by trusting Jesus? And then in verses 7 to 9, He says, how'd you become children of Abraham? Was that by obeying the law, or was that by trusting Jesus? And then in verses 11 to 14, or 10 to 14, he asks, how did you escape the curse of the law, the punishments that the law demands? Was that by your obedience to the law, or was that by trusting Christ? Now, I say that these questions strike right at the heart of the Bible, Because each question focuses on one of the major covenants of the Bible. The first question focuses on the new covenant. How did you get the Spirit? The new covenant is the age in which the Holy Spirit is poured out on every believer. According to Joel 2, according to Ezekiel 36, according to Acts 2. How did you enter this era of the new covenant? The second question focuses on God's covenant with Abraham to bless all nations through his offspring. How did you become inheritors of the blessings promised in the Abrahamic covenant? And the third question focuses on the old covenant or God's covenant with Israel at Sinai. The Mosaic covenant, all terms for the same thing. How did you escape the curses? For covenant disobedience, now I want to pick up our reading again in verse seven, and read down through the end of verse fourteen, and then I want to lead us in a study reviewing these major covenants before coming back and applying it to the last two questions in Galatians three seven to fourteen. Galatians three seven. Know then, Paul says that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and here he's quoting a statement that appears several times in Genesis, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So then, Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And while thinking about blessing, like I pointed out last week, Paul then flips it and focuses on how anyone can be redeemed from the curse. For all, verse 10, who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now, it's evident that no one's justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Then Paul explains the only way to be freed from the law's curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written... Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, in the Messiah, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, like I mentioned, before we observe the Lord's table, I want to walk through the covenantal structure of the Bible. It's been called the backbone of biblical history. I want to reflect on the five major covenants in the Bible, and then conclude with reflections on how all of this ties together in Paul's theological questions in Galatians 3, 7-14. I just want to say at the outset, I pray that no matter where you are today, I pray that sinking your roots into the covenant-keeping love of God like we've done in the service to this point and like we're doing in the Scriptures right now. I pray that it anchors you and you say, this is the world in which I live. It is a world that is being governed according to the promises of God no matter what your circumstances are today, I pray that you will be anchored, that you live in a world that is being governed according to the covenant promises of God. There are five covenants I want to survey, and the first one is the covenant that God made with Adam. God made a covenant with Adam. The Bible begins with God creating the world in six days. And on the climactic sixth day, God makes humans. He makes Adam and Eve in his own image. They're placed in the Garden of Eden to relate with God as his children and to relate with the rest of creation as overseers reflecting God's good rule in creation. God gave them only one restriction. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. It is in covenantal language. Essentially, if you disobey this one restriction, you will most certainly die. It was a covenantal obligation. Hosea 6, 7 says that Adam treacherously transgressed the covenant. He committed... High treason against his creator in violating that one restriction. And God's just consequences fell on Adam and Eve. It included pain throughout life, and it included eventual death. And yet, in meeting out these judgments, God also promised to to curse the tempter, the deceptive serpent who had tempted them. He says in Genesis 3.14, because you, Satan, have done this, cursed are you. The woman's offspring is going to bruise your head, and you are merely going to bruise his heel. Shockingly, as God is meting out judgments for covenant treachery, He gives the world hope. The curse on the tempter is full of hope for the world. This world that's now under the curse of pain and death is in the woman's offspring who's going to experience a relatively small degree of pain while crushing the serpent's head and ending his devastating influence. Jesus is the one who came to fix Adam's failure. Seven thousand years later, several thousand years, you can guess, I I think it's maybe six to seven thousand years, Jesus came as the second Adam. Paul writes in Romans 5, as by Adam's disobedience many were made sinners, so by Jesus' obedience many will be made righteous. Jesus is the second Adam come to fix all that the first Adam ruined. He came as the descendant of the woman who didn't fall to Satan's temptations. Instead, he crushed the serpent's head by dying on the cross, four sinners, releasing them from bondage. And he proved by his resurrection that he can redeem all of creation. God made a covenant with Adam. Adam treacherously violated it, transgressed against that covenant, and Jesus came to fix all that that first Adam had broken. Now, I'm not going to explore in detail God's covenant with Noah, We could spend many weeks focusing on God's covenant with Noah, but the reason I'm not focused on it here is because in relation to the other covenants, the covenant with Noah is a bit more of a negative covenant. Rather than explaining how God is going to redeem creation, it explains how God is essentially going to restrain evil in creation and how God is not going to judge again creation. Here in the Noahic covenant, the flood shows essentially how God could justly deal with human rebellion, but after the flood, God says, I promise not to do it that way ever again. So we move forward to God's covenant with Abram. Several thousand years later, around 2000 BC, the Lord gave further definition to his plan that he had... Revealed to Adam and Eve. He approached Abram, who was an idolater from Ur, modern-day Iraq. And he commanded Abram, follow me. And he promised, I'm reading Genesis 12, 2 and 3. Abram, I will bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Paul quotes that exact phrase in Galatians 3.8. Abram didn't always live as a great exemplary follower of God. He didn't always live in total consecration. In fact, there are a few occasions on which he failed royally. And yet, he persevered in faith. He trusted God. He kept trusting God. He kept getting back up when he failed. And God kept repeating this promise to Abram, the believer, Almost 25 years after the first time, I'm quoting Genesis 17:4, 5, and 6. Genesis 17, God comes to Abram and says, Behold, my covenant's with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I've made you a father of a multitude of nations." Interestingly, this extension of the promise is going to be given to Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his grandson. In fact, in Genesis 35, 11, interestingly, God says to Jacob that he's going to bring from him a company of nations, plural. God changed Abram's name from exalted father to father of a multitude, indicating that Abram would be like an adoptive father to people of many nations who trust him like Abraham did and are brought into union with God through the promised offspring of Abram who would bring blessings to the world. That's how God's going to make Abram a father of a multitude of nations. Amazing promises. A few years later, as Genesis 22 records, God miraculously provided Abraham and his wife Sarah with a son, Isaac, in their old age, and then he proved Abraham's faith by asking him to be willing to give up his one and only son. Abraham passed the test, and God promised again. I'm reading Genesis 22, 17 and 18. Abraham, I will surely bless you, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. In Hebrew, it is singular. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It is clear from this text that the hope for the nations is centered on a singular descendant of Abraham who will have the power to conquer every enemy. And if you know the New Testament, you know Jesus is Abraham's offspring, he is Abraham's offspring who came 2,000 years after Abraham in the line of Abraham, and he was offered up by his father on the same mountain in Jerusalem that Abraham almost offered his son up. But God offered up his one and only son and went through with it so that all who believe in him could be eternally blessed with forgiveness of sins and eternal life, so that people of every nation could be united to Christ And experience the blessing promised to Abram. God made a covenant with Adam. God made a covenant with Abram. Thirdly, God made a covenant with Israel at Sinai. This was mediated by Moses. So it's called sometimes the law. It's sometimes called the Sinaitic covenant. It's sometimes called the Mosaic covenant or the Mosaic law. Sometimes contrasted with what we're going to talk talk about in a few minutes, the new covenant. And this one is called the old covenant. Different terms for the same thing. About 500 years after Abraham, Abraham's descendants through his grandson Jacob were a vast multitude. God powerfully freed them from their slavery in Egypt through the ten plagues and the Red Sea. And then atop Mount Sinai, with Moses mediating, God entered into a covenant with the nation. God said at the outset of the ceremony, I'm quoting Exodus 19.5, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. And there, the people entered into this covenant. Exodus 24.3 says that the people all agreed with one voice to obey. Yes, we will obey the terms of the covenant. We will be faithful to you. Of course, at the center of this covenant also was a design for a tabernacle, a priesthood, a sacrificial system. That's like the whole end of Exodus and the whole book of Leviticus, so that the people could be reconciled to God through a mediator. Their sins could be forgiven through what all of those sacrifices pictured. Israel would enter into this covenant at Sinai, as I quoted from Exodus 24.3. And then a generation later, after that first generation was so faithless and not trusting the Lord, the next generation would enter into this covenant a second time, Deuteronomy, the second law. The second generation would enter into this same covenant saying, yes, Lord, we are going to obey. In Deuteronomy, particularly chapter 27, God divides the nation into two groups, Six tribes go up on this mountain. Six tribes go up on this mountain. Part of them were on Mount Gerizim. These two groups shouted back and forth the blessings of the law and the curses of the law. The six tribes on the one mountain pronounced curses on the people. That end with, I'm reading Deuteronomy 27, 26. Curse be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Let me say it again. Curse be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. That's the last of the curses that was uttered atop that mountain. And that's exactly what Paul quotes in Galatians 3.10. The other six tribes on the other mountain, pronounce the blessings. So Deuteronomy 28.2 says, All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Interestingly, in the past few years, a small curse tablet has been found in excavations at Mount Ebal, one of these two mountains. There are still debates over whether this is the oldest found written form of Hebrew in the world. But I was in a session with Scott Stripling a year ago as he was presenting the finds of the curse tablet on Mount Ebal. The testimony of the nation Israel over the next thousand years is summarized in 2 Chronicles 36 16. Quote Israel kept mocking the messengers of God, they kept despising the words of God. They kept scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. The curses of the law fell on the nation Israel because the whole nation was marked by generation after generation after generation treachery against the covenant. They kept breaking and breaking and breaking the covenant. The people who had committed themselves to obeying didn't obey, the law gave them no power to. The only person who ever obeyed the law perfectly was Jesus. And yet he also bore the law's curse. 1,500 years after Moses, 1,500 years after Sinai, Jesus came to earth and lived the only perfect human life, He never broke one of the commands of God in action or in desire. He always chose to live what the law demanded. Loving God supremely with all his heart. Loving others more than he loved himself. And yet Jesus, who deserved to enjoy all the blessings of the law, submitted himself out of obedience to his Father to the curse of the law. He hung naked on a tree. He died in the place of us selfish, deviant rebels. He himself was the perfect priest, offering the perfect sacrifice, making himself the temple, the place, the, the one through whom you could meet with God and be reconciled to God forever. Jesus obeyed the law. Jesus bore the law's curse. Jesus fulfilled the The Mosaic Covenant. Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant. None of us can. None of us should try. Fourth, God made a covenant with King David. At the heart, really, of Israel's history. This is almost 500 years after Moses and almost 500 years before the destructive curses fell on the nation as a whole. God made a promise to David. This is often called the Davidic Covenant. And in this promise, God clarifies the promises he had already made. I'm reading 2 Samuel 7, from verses 11 to 16. God tells David, I will bless your offspring. One of your biological descendants, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Hmm. By this point in history, David is himself a descendant of Abraham and now he understands that God's plan to restore his blessings to all of creation would not just come through Abraham's offspring or through Jacob's offspring or through Judah's offspring but it would come through David's offspring it keeps getting more and more and more specific of course we know that Jesus is David's descendant who will rule forever as king on earth Maybe you should count this December. How many times you hear the word Bethlehem? How many times do you hear it in stores? How many times do you hear it on the radio? How many times do we say it here or sing it here or read it at home? How many times do you hear Bethlehem? Why does Bethlehem matter? It's because that's where David's from. And the great king who's going to reign as king of kings is coming from David's line. He's coming from Bethlehem. Jesus is the Davidic king. That's why Matthew 1:1, 1, 1, the very first verse of the New Testament says, "Here's the record of the ancestry of Jesus the Messiah." He was a descendant of King David and a descendant of Abraham. In other words, he's finally here. This individual who God promised to Abraham to restore all blessings to creation, to all peoples on earth, he's here. God promised to send a king from David's line who would rule forever on earth as the prince of peace. He's here. The descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David, he's here. Finally, God made a new covenant contrasted with the Sinaitic covenant or the Mosaic law, the old covenant. He made a new covenant with exiled Israel. Of course, in the centuries after David, most of Israel's kings did not lead the nation to follow God's law. And yet, shockingly, God repeatedly promised a better future. Shocking. Especially through prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Even as Israel was about to be overthrown by Babylon, like within 10 years of that, God is speaking through Jeremiah to Israel saying, I'm going to enact a new covenant. And anyone who relates to me on the terms of this new covenant is going to experience a relationship with me. Quote, I'm quoting from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Because I'm going to change your heart by my Holy Spirit and I'm going to forgive all of your sin. It's this climactic new covenant that God promises in Ezekiel 36. I'm going to put my spirit in my people's hearts. The spirit's coming as part of these new covenant promises. This is what the old covenant didn't do. It could tell the people the way they needed to live. It couldn't give them the power to do it. Only the spirit can. When did this new covenant go into effect? We're going to review it in just a few minutes. The night before Jesus was crucified, at the Passover, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus enacted this new covenant when he was crucified. That's when these promises went into effect. Everyone who commits his or her life to Jesus experiences the promises of the new covenant Our hearts are changed so that we want to obey God. Our sins are forgiven. We're forever reconciled to God so that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. According to the terms of the New Covenant, whether you are a man or a woman, old or young, poor or rich, Jew or non-Jew, everyone who turns to Jesus will be saved, will experience the Spirit's power at work in our hearts, And everyone who turns to Jesus will one day inherit the kingdom. This is the backbone, as it's been said, of biblical history, the covenantal structure of the Bible. So now, turn back to Galatians 3, 13 and 14. When Paul begins to question the Galatian believers... About why they're trying to be right with God by mixing faith in Jesus with obedience to the Mosaic law, he brings the entire weight of the Bible to bear on them. Paul isn't just picking a few random theological questions, trying to throw curveballs at them. He's taking the entire Bible and he's saying, Do you realize you cannot relate to God on the terms of the old covenant? You must relate to God on the terms of the new covenant. You don't mix obeying the law and faith in Jesus. He writes, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's the Mosaic covenant. Jesus freed us from the curse of the terms of that covenant for all who disobey. How did he free us from the curse of the law? By becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that's referring to God's covenant with Abraham. The blessing promised to Abraham could come to the Gentiles so that we might receive what's promised in the new covenant. The Spirit... On every believer, do you see how the whole Bible's structure is underneath Paul's thinking in reasoning with the Galatians in Galatians three one to fourteen? Now let's just step back and reflect. The story of human history is the story of a God who is full of shocking steadfast love. He is the God who keeps on committing himself over and over again, not to people who earn it. He keeps committing himself over and over again to idolaters, to people who don't deserve it. And God has designed all of human history, all of it, To focus on Jesus. It all focuses on Jesus. All the covenants find their fulfillment in him. Every human being, according to Paul in Galatians 3, is in one of two states. Either we are under God's certain curse because of our law-breaking, and because really, we are unable to do anything to reverse the consequences of what we've already earned by our lawbreaking. I've asked this question before, but if a criminal has been convicted of a crime and his consequences are being meted out in Painesville, does any of his good works undo the consequences for his criminal behavior? Good works don't outweigh, undo. They can't. Our lawbreaking brings God's certain curse, and no amount of good works can undo what we deserve. So either we are under God's certain curse because of our lawbreaking, or we are under God's promised blessing. The promised blessing to Abraham, the promised blessing that we would receive the Spirit and everything that comes with him. How does that blessing come? Is it through obedience? Well, kind of. Not yours, not mine. It's through Christ. We trust the perfect, obedient Son. We trust the perfect, obedient lawkeeper. We trust the perfect lawkeeper who also graciously was crucified, bearing all the curse of the law in our place. Do you see that there is no mixing of relating to God on the basis of obeying the law and trusting in Jesus? You don't relate to God on the terms of two contracts you know what, I'm going to relate to God sometimes on the old contract at Sinai and sometimes on the new contract at Calvary. Paul is saying that's absurd. If, according to Sinai, the Mosaic law, the responsibility is on you to obey the law in order to have a relationship with God, then you're under the law's curse. If you're relating to God on the terms of Sinai, you're cursed. But if your contract was paid in blood at Calvary, then the responsibility is on Jesus to obey the law and to bear the curse that you deserve. If the terms of your contract are, I'm trusting Jesus and what he did if that's the terms of your contract for relating to God, then you have hope for blessing. You have hope to escape the curse. You have hope for redemption, for forgiveness, for eternal life with God. Do you see, according to the scriptures, the weight of responsibility for standing just before God? It's either all on you, or it's all on Jesus. There is no hybrid gospel. Are you relating to God by faith in Jesus? What is faith? Well, faith is conviction. Facts that have convinced me that leads to life commitment. So I ask about the facts. Are you convinced of the facts? Are you convinced that Jesus is God become man? Are you convinced that Jesus is God's chosen king to rule forever on earth, that he's the Messiah? Are you convinced that Jesus was crucified for your sins? As he himself said, as prophets for centuries before him said, as all the apostles who personally knew him testified, he died as the substitute for you. And then he rose again, proving that he could redeem you and all of creation from death. Are you convinced of the facts? Has your conviction led you to life commitment? To repent, to turn from your own rebellion, from being your own authority? Have you called out to Jesus saying, Lord, Jesus, save me. King Jesus, lead me, shepherd me, rule me. I'm going to follow you. Have you committed your life to King Jesus? This is what faith means. It is conviction that leads to commitment. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I urge you to do so right now. Right now, trust Jesus. He's your only hope for being reconciled to God. Commit your life to the King who died and rose again for you. And if you have committed your life to Jesus, if you have trusted Jesus, then believer, do not go back. Don't ever go back to trying to work your way out of God's judgment, to work your way into God's good favors. Don't ever think that eternal blessings are contingent on whether you have a good day today or not. Keep living by faith in Jesus.